we were trying to adjust this so my beard didn't interfere with the <laughs> microphone situation this morning. The old beard microphone issues. Classic. Um, uh, this is a picture of just days ago. We traveled uh, to Wisconsin to visit my family, and we've kind of created a tradition a little bit because of our, um, uh, we like, uh, this is my dad. Uh, that's the, that's my daughter, sorry, on the left, not my dad. It's uh, <laughs> my dad and myself. Um, and every year we kind of build something over Thanksgiving. It's a bit of, it's become a tradition and also uh, practically a way for us to do something because Otherwise, you just eat food and sit around, which actually is pretty great. But it's helpful to have a little project. So we've had a history of projects from, they're usually from potato guns to different types of potato guns to smaller potato guns. I think many years it was a potato gun. And so I switched gears this year. And this year we built an arcade, which was a dream of mine. Uh, and it came true. It came true right now. At my house, you can play old games. Um, this is my daughter's Zarai eating the, the turkey leg. She's a pro. Thanksgiving eater, one of my favorite pictures. I had a really, we had a really uh, enjoyable time, uh, maybe except for the last part of the drive last night as we drove through some ice and snow, but I had a really good weekend just seeing family, being with family. Um, I found this, this photo, my parents had this, sh these shelves in their house and uh, they're just filled with like pictures of, of uh, different things um, from my parents to us growing up to uh, family, grandparents. It tends to be a time that we kind of reminisce, uh, at least for me. Um, and I think more and more as I get older, I reminisce uh, on Thanksgiving because it, you remember old Thanksgivings and you remember family and you see family maybe that you haven't seen. We went around the table on our uh, this year, which we try to do most years, and everyone shares something they're thankful for. That's like a mandatory thing, kind of. Um, and our, our daughter shared, first she said, I'm thankful for family, and she said she called no repeats. Which apparently is a rule you can just, it's like Foursquare, you can just make up new <laughs> rules. So no repeats, so she said no, no repeats, family, uh, which is kind of the, the go-to, right, at Thanksgiving. You say like, oh, well, I'm thankful we're all just together. Um, and then we went around the table, and as we went around the table, everyone shared other things they, they um, were thankful for, but they all kind of ended with like, well, of course, family. Family became like, well, I, no, I can't say family, but I, that's, that's what at this moment I'm really thankful for. And it, it did make me think about family, which maybe for some of you that's a happy thought, maybe a not so happy thought. But it did make me think, I think at, at times when I'm with my family, especially maybe for more than like a few hours, sometimes I can be less thankful for my family as we're all like stuck in a house together. But I was trying really hard this year to think, how can I be thankful? And, um, it, and I was looking at the passage that we have, this last passage in Nehemiah. Um, and it, it kind of all uh, connected for me. And I was remembering this, the legacy that my family has had on me. I was in my parents' basement building an arcade with my dad, thinking about this legacy he's passed on of building and creating things, of solving problems. He's the one who taught me how to like, we'll take it apart and we'll see if we can get it back together uh, as a kid, which now has, has saved me many, many hundreds of dollars on my house to be able to fix things. Um, and knowing that as a kid, we would go to my grandfather's house and he had a workshop in his basement. And that's where my dad learned how. And knowing, hearing stories of my great-great-grandfather on the farm, building and seeing pictures of them, like just put things together, weld stuff together to make things. Um, and so seeing, just thinking about this legacy that has been passed in my family of creating and building, uh, being able to take risks, 
in, in how we can do that. Thinking about my mom, her kindness, her love, her generosity. When you're there, she just makes things feel warm and welcome. Uh, she's a mom who I came home from school. She knew like that I needed a hug before I told her I needed a hug. Um, she taught me to really love people well, be really patient with people. And I've learned as I'm hanging out with family, that's how my, my grandmother and other family members were the same. This, this great amount of hospitality and love that my great-great-grandfather has this rich Norwegian history of welcoming people in and serving them food and sitting around a fire and uh, being warm through conversations and relationships. Um, and so it, it made me realize and just remember again this year, uh, and for all of us, right, we have these legacies that are passed on for good or bad through families, and they go back way farther than that, I'm sure. I'm sure my great-great-great-grandfather learned something from someone, too. He didn't invent hospitality. Um, and so as we end Nehemiah, we're going to think about what this legacy, what Nehemiah's legacy is, and the passage we have today, it, uh, I think the heart of it is getting at this idea of what is a person's legacy. So if you um, have Bibles, you can open up to Nehemiah 13, otherwise all the passages will be right up here on the screen. My hope today is that we can leave with this, if nothing else, that our faithfulness to God and his family is the most important legacy in our lifetimes. Actually, more than our lifetimes, but for us, the life we have here. Thinking about our legacy with God and our faithfulness to him is the most important legacy, which can get, I think, uh, hard sometimes when there's lots of other things that are wanting my attention for legacy. So let's start here in Nehemiah 13. The end of it, this is it. We've been going through Nehemiah all fall, and this is the last thing that we, um, it's kind of actually a strange, and it doesn't just wrap up, it just kind of ends. So let's see this thing just end. Uh, this is Nehemiah uh, 13, 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, or the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses on them. I beat some of the men. You ready for this? I pulled out their hair. Very strong reaction from Nehemiah. I made them take an oath to God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for their sons or for yourselves. So we, we've been looking at, in 13, he showed us three different things where the people have turned away from, from what God has for them. Uh, and they're all connected in the end. And so this one, he's, he has a, an issue. He comes back. Nehemiah helps build these great walls there. And he comes back, uh, and they've accomplished this, this thing, that he came back for building the walls. They, they worship God. People actually start moving back into Jerusalem. Um, they, they actually get on the walls with these choirs and sing to worship him. They actually recommit in Nehemiah 10, kind of recommit to following God, to be obedient to God. And then Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah ends with, here's how people turned away from God, and I had to again turn back to them. In some Bibles, this, this section is called like Nehemiah Reforms. God's people. Um, it's this cycle that we see over and over. Um, and here, he's calling these people out to say, I came back and found out these men of Judah, which are these Yahweh's men, these men who follow God, have been marrying women um, outside of their nation from these three nations that are surrounding nations. Uh, people that they typically haven't always been, um, these aren't people that are always like enemies to, per se, but uh, they're, they're not people who worship God. And they're marrying them. Uh, and he has a problem with it. A, a big enough problem 
that he calls curses on them, he, and he pulls out their hair, which I've never been even tempted to, no matter how angry I am, I've never been thought, I'm gonna pull that guy's hair out. That's how angry I am right now. That's how, I mean, this is, this is a real deal. He, he has a very strong reaction, he forces them, he, he makes them take an oath. He's pulling their hair out, and he says, take an oath, which you, you take whatever the, the guy says, because he's pulling your hair out. It says, they will not let their daughters marry, uh, these, these people from other nations, they will not marry them. No one should be marrying these people from other nations. Can you imagine this person in a headlock, getting their hair pulled out? Yeah, yeah, whatever you want, Nehemiah. Please stop pulling my hair out. He's, he has a really strong reaction. Why would he have such a strong reaction to this? Is, does Nehemiah not like that people from different nations marry? Does he not like mixed ethnic marriages? I, I don't think that's it. <laughs> That's not it. Um, let's see. D.A. Carson has something I think is really helpful in this. This is going to get the heart of what we're going to look at today. When Nehemiah comments that some of their kids can't even speak Aramaic, but can communicate only in some dialect of Ammonite, he's not inciting xenophobia, a hatred of neighbors, a kind of narrow tribalism. So he's not saying you, you, we shouldn't marry people of other races or their place, even though this passage has been used for that historically, incorrectly. Um, th this is it right here, here's the point. The point is that these children do not know the language of the people of God, so they do not know the covenants of the people of God. They do not know the worship of the people of God. They do not know the word of God. They do not know the God of the people of God. The, the problem isn't who they're marrying, the problem is the result of those families being formed. And the result is that the legacy of those families has changed. The kids in those families don't know who God is, which is a big deal. Everything that Nehemiah has, has struggled with in this last chapter is people forgetting who God is and turning their worship to other things. And um, we see that here. That he doesn't say, Nehemiah doesn't say, you marry these people, you should leave them and marry the right people. He actually just comes to those men and says, this is wrong because your children won't know who God is. So the problem is that they're not passing on the one thing that brings life and hope, instead bringing things that bring death uh, into their house. Um, have you guys seen this picture? This, this was actually like on TV. This is a screenshot. This is a Diamondbacks game where they took a picture of all these uh, I think this is actually a sorority later that they found out. But they, uh, these are people at a baseball game not watching the baseball game. <laughs> it's like so perfect. If you go to a Twins game, you see this, right? You see people all over like taking selfies or doing something else. Or you end up sitting by a guy who like plays Candy Crush the entire game. And you're like, how much did you pay to come play Candy Crush in an uncomfortable seat? <laughs> it's, it's not like the, the beer's cheap or the food's cheap. Or, uh, so in, in a way, right? He's, he's calling out this, why, why are you bringing people, letting them influence you, that aren't even about this thing? You, they're not here for the game. They're not here, right, to, to watch the game. They're here for something else. And so we're bringing these other things, which are, and they're then being influenced to become selfie takers with them. Now, they, you wonder maybe what was the motivation in this passage. The motivation often um, wasn't necessarily even romantic. It wasn't necessarily that they saw someone and they thought they were beautiful and they got to know each other and they kind of went on dates like, ah, oh, I know we probably shouldn't date, but this 
this seems so right. And uh, often, it, it, in culturally, that it was because of money, because of possessions, because when you married a certain person, you got certain things out of it from their family. So these people are actually marrying multiple people, and so they were gaining wealth by this. They, they weren't marrying them just because they like, had fallen in love. Also, politically, this was really important. If you married someone, uh, then your families now were combined. Now you had land somewhere or influence somewhere, or someone said, hey, you can marry my daughter, and, and then our two, our two nations uh, or our, even our two regions or our two tribes now are friendly because we've now exchanged uh, people, which is uh, very different, right? We don't, we don't experience that necessarily the same now. But I think we do this. We enter into covenant relationships, whether that is in marriage or with with just really close relationships with people that we're committed to that, that influence us for many reasons. And I don't think they're often very different than, than these. Ultimately, these are all, what, what do I get out of this relationship? I'm in this relationship because I get something out of it. You get something out of it. We can exchange some kind of goods or something emotionally or, or something, right? Or I get some kind of status change because of our relationship. The relationship is not necessarily based out of... Uh, 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 to serve one another and help each other become the person who God wants us to be, it becomes an exchange, right? I think this happens, uh, I can picture your friends right away who are dating that person they shouldn't be dating. We all know why they're dating, uh, and it's not necessarily healthy, right? And so I, that, that's the same thing that happens now. We don't, that's not new. But then the reason might have been different, it might have literally been, we're going to marry so that like, our peoples can now trade should be a wild thing to, to deal with. So he's upset, not because of the, the nations they're from, but because one of these nations is not worshiping God, which is not life, which is not going to lead to hope. And then they're being influenced by that. So they're getting married, and they're not influencing that person to continue to lead God. Their legacy is not my children and their children get to continue to worship God, but they are now turning to that. And it's not... He shares next, it's not just a thing that a few people in Jerusalem dealt with. This is a history of God's people. So then he goes on to say, was, this not, was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all of Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. So he says, this is a big deal in our history. One of our great kings had the same thing happen. He, he married a woman, and she encouraged and convinced his family to start worshiping her God, build her temples, and it happened. So I don't think he's saying here, watch out for those foreign women who are going to make you worship other gods. He's saying, even Solomon, who is so wise and so great, there were none like him could be drawn into worship of someone other than God, the true God. Even Solomon. Right? This, is, this is a serious thing. This happens with Solomon, the king like no other king, the leader of your people, and he's led to worship other gods. And you know what? It, it isn't just Solomon. It isn't just some of you. In fact, it's the people who are supposed to lead you, the people whose job is to lead you to worship God have done the same. He continues on, must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons 
um, of Joadda, son of Elishab, the high priest his, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. And I drive him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I have made this provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. That's the end of the book of Nehemiah. Let's, let's unpack this a little bit. He says, so this is happening. The problem is that these, the legacy of God, worshiping God because that brings life and hope, isn't happening. And this happened in the past with our kings, our great kings, and it's happening right now with the people whose job is to help us worship God and to give, and to give sacrifices to God. The, the, the people who have anyone else is supposed to be leading us to Yahweh and helping us worship the true God should be them. And if you remember these names, you might have um, remember them earlier. Um, Eliashib is the one who uh, gave part of the temple to Tobiah. So Tobiah could like make a house, like live there. <laughs> he let Tobiah move in and, and push out all the offerings to the priests so the priests no longer could lead the temple. So he's actually referring again to this family who, uh, who is supposed to be leading the charge in helping these people worship God. And he's saying, even, even right now. So in our past, in our present, and as we see in our future, we have this problem that we want to turn to anything but God. And so he, he goes in and he purifies them. Nehemiah himself says he purifies the priests, the Levites of everything foreign, uh, assign them duties, each to his own task. So he goes in and actually re, uh, reorganizes he says, okay, this is what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be helping the people to worship God. You're supposed to be going into the presence of God to give sacrifices so that people's sins were atoned for, taken care of. This, this was paid for, and it's not happening. And he ends uh, with this, remember me with favor, my God. I, I've been trying to keep your legacy going. Um, it, it seems almost he ends with, like, not, not an excited, remember me, but like a please... Remember me. Earlier we actually hear him say, remember us. And, the, and Nehemiah has moved to a remember me. At least I'm still going to be faithful. Um, I think uh, the book of Nehemiah and Nehemiah's legacy is often thought of as Nehemiah. He's the guy who built the walls around Jerusalem. And I think Nehemiah as he ends the book this way, I think there's a, um, a remembering of his legacy as he's trying his hardest to keep people worshiping the God they're supposed to worship, they're created to worship. Um, I, I don't know if he would, I don't, this is me guessing, I don't know if Nehemiah cares as much about his legacy as a wall builder as much as the one who came to restore God's city so people could return and worship God. That, that's his goal. I don't know if he cares as much about the wall, but what the wall does. I want us to look carefully at one part of this that I think is interesting, the phrasing at the first verse here, 27. Um, at the end it says, um, well, I'll read the whole thing. Must we hear now that you, are, you too are doing these terrible, this terrible wickedness and you're being unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women. That phrase, unfaithful, is connected to covenant. So he's saying you're adulterers, of being unfaithful, marrying for a woman. He's, ta he's talking in marriage language 
about our relationship with God uh, that as if we're having an affair with these people who don't worship God. I think that's really interesting. All of a sudden, this whole passage looks like an explanation of what our relationship looks like with God and then what draws us to that relationship and what pulls us away from that relationship. It looks as if we are being called, uh, we're, we're married to God. We're in this covenant with God and what is pulling us away. That our primary covenant is this relationship with God and anything that pulls us away from that, um, it pulls us towards death. We see this same thing mentioned in Ephesians 5. Uh, Paul is talking all about what marriage looks like and what it looks like to submit and serve each other and serve each other like Christ has served the church. And then he says, like, because your marriage gets to bear the image of the greater relationship of God and his people. That our marriages and our covenant relationships, the way we are, are in really close relationship with people, actually are just bearing the image of our primary covenant relationship, which is with God. Instead of our marriages, however my marriage is going, defines how my relationship with God is. Because I could, I could have that. I could go home, and my wife Kelly and I could have, a, could have a rough afternoon where we just aren't clicking, and it feels off, and I don't feel encouraged by her, and she's not feeling loved by me. And I could think, man, this is just like my relationship with God. He just does not encourage me enough. What has he ever done for me? You know, other than dying across and those things. But what has he ever done? We start taking the, the relationships here that are broken and we start projecting them onto our relationship with God rather than what if our relationships here pushed us to, to that, that primary covenantal relationship so that we would not be unfaithful to that relationship. But what if the people here that we, that we committed to were, 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 were pushing us to, back towards God, which we just see the opposite happening here. We, we can see these broken relationships around us and project them onto God and this isn't new. This is just an old, old Testament timeline. You don't need to see it. You just need to see, this is a timeline of the Old Testament. This is what happens over and over and over and over. So these covenants, these commitments to one another happen all the way back. God, it happens with Adam, and it happens with Noah, and it happens with Moses. It happens with Abraham and with David. Over and over and over, God makes these covenants. I'm with you. I'm not leaving you. I love you. And then those people those individuals, but also those people that are being led by those people continue to say, that's how good that we have a God who is, who's married us, who's with us to the end, in sickness and in health, and then how quickly we turn to become unfaithful towards somebody or something else. Remember the story of when God rescued his people, the, our, our groom rescued us, from slavery in Egypt, and they're free. They go through the Red Sea. Crazy things happen to get out. We're finally free, and um, one of the first things we decide to do is to melt all of our gold and build a calf, and we worship a golden calf. <laughs> How quickly... Uh, it's like we're on our honeymoon, and we decide, eh, I think a golden calf might be sweeter than this. That history continues a theme of generational unfaithfulness. Our legacy is that we're unfaithful. A legacy of worship that's broken. Often, I think, for the same reasons that we see here um, in a micro sense, in a macro sense, we see for what we get, right? Or how, what status it puts us at, or what power we have from it. 
I'm willing to turn to anything if it makes me right now immediately feel like I have more power or more stuff. So the sin starts in the beginning and is in the middle. And at the point we're at now in Nehemiah, it's still there. Nehemiah ends kind of on a dud in the sense it it's still happening. He built the wall. The people came back. It's going to happen. And then we end Nehemiah remembering this is, this is the same thing. We become unfaithful. If we just build the wall, then we'll be able to worship faithfully. It doesn't happen, right? If I just get through this week, I'll be able to worship faithfully. I just have this person in my life. I'll be able to worship if I read this new book or have this new friend. If my family was just normal, then I could worship. Instead, I can just worship my God. I think we have this uh, kind of broken marriage with our God. This covenant that God fulfills, he continues to pursue us over and over and over and care for us, and we continue to be uh, unfaithful. Or if it's easier to think about, we'll move away from marriage for a second. Um, Think of tearing up your birth certificate. Could you imagine doing that? Actually, maybe you could imagine. Maybe it is Thanksgiving weekend, so maybe there's a moment this weekend you were with family that you were like, oh, I wish I could tear that thing up. I wish I... (laughs) Wish I was never born or never born to you, right? Have you ever felt that, right? This, this is what happens. We're born, God claims us, and we say, no, 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 I don't want to be a part of your family. And we tear that thing up. And we think someone else is going to welcome us into their family with a promise of you'll get this if you're in our family, and it ends up failing and ends up bringing death. It seems as if this covenant is impossible on our end, to do. The covenant of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David all seem to fall short. They seem to not work. Even Nehemiah's legacy seems to fall short. But there is hope. There's good hope. And actually right before Nehemiah, we hear this God speak to his people and tell him the plan for what's going to happen. How this is going to be fixed. And this is in Jeremiah 31. Uh, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Well, this isn't the end. With the people of Judah, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after the time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, for the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. That sounds like a good day. You imagine being people who historically over and over and over just keep being unfaithful, saying, we just can't, this isn't working, this isn't going to work. And God says, well, you know what, I'm going to come make a new covenant, and you're going to be forgiven you're going to be my people and I'll be your people and I'll be with you. And he does. Jesus comes. God himself comes to make it right. And Jesus calls himself a new covenant. And in Hebrews, we hear them talk about Jesus as our new, perfect, right, high priest. And in Hebrews 8, they explain Jesus in this way. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received 
is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. Jesus is superior to the old covenant since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, we get that, right? This is what God says. See if you've heard this before. The days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, and it will be like no other covenant I made with the ancestors. He, Hebrews is quoting the words that were said years and years before in Jeremiah that we just read. I'll be their husband. I'll be in their minds and hearts. I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. And at the end there, verse 13, by calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. So Jesus does come and fix it. He fix our, fixes our unfaithfulness by being faithful. He fixes our sin by being sinless and willing to die for our sin. He becomes the right king that actually is faithful. And he becomes the right priest who actually sacrifices and leads the people back to God. That cycle ends as Christ comes. And now we get to put our faith in Christ and be in a right relationship with God. And we get to celebrate this this month. As we end Nehemiah, we're starting a new series for the next uh, few weeks throughout December for Advent. Our time uh, that we're coming, that we're calling come the long expected Jesus, we get to celebrate that Jesus is coming to put an end to this old covenant that doesn't work and bringing in the new covenant, which means a new marriage to God that is good and right. Thank God for that. And we get to celebrate each week how exciting it is that Jesus is coming. In fact, the first week next week, um, Brian's gonna get to share with you the family history of Jesus, all the sinners and all the messed up people in Jesus' history that have this terrible legacy, but thankfully leads to this wonderful legacy in, in Jesus. So um, as we end here, I want to encourage you with uh, part, of, part of my story, our family's story. Um, we, uh, in the process of getting to uh, adopt our girls and our family. We got to go to court. You know, there's this, this moment where we get to make a covenant. So a few of the only places you make a legal covenant in your life is in marriage, where you actually have to sign something and the state says you're in a covenant with someone. Um, and you can do this with, like, friends, but I don't think it's legal. But you can, like, you know, make friend covenants. Uh, I think it's kind of cool, actually, to do that. Um, but when you have a kid, you have a covenant with your kid. You're saying, I'm not leaving you. We're not going anywhere. I love you. And so we got to go to court and make this official with our families. Um, and uh, this is something I didn't know would happen. It, at court, the judge says, you're now a family. And he says, you'll get your birth certificates in the mail. And I was like, well, our girls have birth certificates. And uh, so he explains, no, we, um, we redo your birth certificates. Your names will be on there. So your daughters are, were born to you. So we have birth certificates in our home that say our daughter's names, and they say Drew and Kelly Zolke on them. They have new birth certificates. This is what happens, friends. We, the, old, the old covenant, the, the birth certificate that we tore up because we're unfaithful, we didn't want to be in the family, 
We are led astray by, by things or people around us. Is made new. It says your name on it. It says God on it. It's because of Christ, we have this new family that we're welcomed into. I pray that we'd be people who would move into that family. We'd be people who would gather those around us, who would point us and push us back into our relationship with our primary um, covenant relationship. Um, as we wrap up, uh, just a few questions to think about as you, uh, we end our time. If our faithfulness to God is our greatest legacy, if this really is the most important relationship and legacy we have, then do you know that Jesus has made it possible to even be in that relationship? Maybe you're not a person who, uh, maybe you do know this or have heard this, but is today a day that God gets to write this on your heart and you say, I do, I want to believe that. I want to move towards God and I want to put faith in Christ and be in that covenant. Or who or what is helping you remain faithful to Jesus? That, that could be a question. Maybe you're, in, you're actually in a marriage do you help one another be faithful to, to Jesus? Are you helping push each other? Or is your marriage one that maybe just uses each other for things? Um, or who or what is pulling you away from Jesus? I guess that would be one that something would come to mind or you can pray through that. What is the thing? And who do you know who needs to know this really good news? That that cycle of death of unfaithfulness can stop. There's a God who's pursued them and loves them. Because that's really, that is really good news. Sitting around a Thanksgiving table and hearing uh, people complain about different po political things or life or, man, a lot of people need to know there's hope and good news out there. Let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your kindness towards us, that you love us dearly, um, that you would pursue us over and over and over, and in fact, to the point of sending Christ to make a new covenant, that we would have a new relationship, a right relationship with you, and that the old one is obsolete, that that system is no more, and that now we put our faith in Christ as our high priest and our king, as our sacrifice, as the one who gives us life. That is good news. I pray we'd cling to him today. Amen.